All right. And we're in this series called Move, Propelling Your Greatest, Your Most Important Relationship Forward. And we need to do this. We need to talk about this because sometimes, even in the best of marriages, marriages can get stuck. And so in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 21, uh, we're going to take a look at what uh, I feel is the most profound passage in our sacred text about marriage. So Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 21. All right, we all there? Good? Okay. So Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 21, uh, says this. Actually, let's read this all together, okay? Ready, go. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay. Now, how many of you would say, that's my favorite Bible verse? Okay, probably not, right? Probably not one of the ones that are like, that's my life verse. I love that. There's not a lot of, of us who we wake up every morning thinking about, yeah, I really want to submit. Um, especially when we think about our world, the world we live in, that we're always thinking about how I can get ahead. And we're always thinking about how I can do more, how I want to be a leader. I don't want to be a follower. How I want to be an influencer and things like that. So this idea of submission First of all, it's not really in our sight as far as like what we want to do very often. And typically, we actually have a very negative connotation to this word. So I just let you know, when I think of submit, I think of the word submission, right? And when I think of the word submission, I think of MMA, mixed martial arts, okay? So mixed martial arts, and when I think of submission is you have two guys, right, trying to beat each other up. And basically what happens is that when one person can get another person into a submission hold, like a choke hold. And your only option then is that person will either choke out or they have to tap out. Okay? So that's my idea of submission. Not very fun. Definitely not in marriage. Hopefully your marriage doesn't feel like that. Okay? But we're all falling, and so you never know where, where marriages are. So what I want to try to do is try to um, maybe redeem this idea of submission a little bit more. Because I'll tell you this, we're going to be talking about marriage, but what I've noticed is just personally, real quick, in your 20s, when you're thinking about leadership and when you're thinking about changing the world and when you're thinking about doing well at work and advancing your career, it's all about go, go, go and do, do, do and let no one and nothing hold you back. And you could end up running over a lot of people. And what I've learned over the years in my own journey and trying to do those things as well and move forward and want to change the world and change the community, things like that, is that the word submit and meekness take a lot more prominence. You actually sometimes need to know when to hold back in order to propel your future forward faster at a later time. That will take you even further than if you just tried to do it on your own and force your way forward. Uh, that's one of the things that I've learned. So that's a, a little leadership note aside for you, okay? But Paul, again, he's going to um, talk about what's this. Let me give you a better, a more correct, perhaps a, a more um, redeemed definition of what it means to submit. So on your outline, to submit means to courageously yield my preferences for the preference of another. To submit means to courageously yield my preference in order to give preference for another. Now, I've used that word courageously, very intentionally, because we're going to see that Christ is the model of submission. And Jesus Christ, he submits to the cross. 
big up there, right? Jesus Christ submits to the cross. He submits to the will of the Father, but he doesn't do that from a place of weakness. It wasn't that it was just done to him. Jesus actually willingly goes to the cross with courage. He goes and he submits himself from a place of powerful love. He goes and he submits himself from a place of courageous, courageous trust in the Father. I mean, Jesus, as at one point in Gethsemane, he says, Father, if it's possible, if there's another way, you know, does he know if there's another way? I don't know. He thinks, he's wondering, if there's another way to go through this without going through this, then let's not do this. But he puts his life courageously in the hands of a loving God. He trusts, he has to trust God. So there's no weakness in submission here. And he does this after being whipped and spit upon and everyone hates him and is judging him through unimaginable grit and strength. He submits himself to the cross. So when you think about that word submission, I don't want you to think have these ideas. To submit does not mean I don't have an opinion. It doesn't mean I just roll over. It doesn't mean I don't ask questions. It doesn't even mean I push back. It doesn't mean that I abdicate my role of a leader or authority to someone else. Submission is a spirit-led decision to courageously yield my preference in order to give preference to another. Now, we talked a lot about uh, marriage last week and vows. We talked about vows last week. And when I, I told you, when I looked at the vows, there are basically three actionable buckets. And when I look at the promises that a lot of people made as couples, those promises that you make, they are actually promises of submission. You're actually, you actually made mutual promises of submission. And I told you there was, there was three buckets in which people made promises. The first one was love. And that promise sounds like this. I'm going to love you, my spouse, my future spouse, more than I love myself, or at least as much as I love myself. That was one of them. That is an act. That is a promise of submission to courageously give preference to another. And then the other kind of promise, another bucket, was about spiritual leadership. And if it's not just spiritual leadership, at least it's spiritual development. I promise that I'm going to help you grow. As much as I know that a relationship God is important to me, and I'm trying to pursue God in my life, I also want to be a person that helps you grow. I want to put your spiritual life above or maybe at least at the same level as mine. There was a promise for that. That is submission. Because our preference is just to think of ourselves. And then the third bucket was about dreams I told you about, right? That a lot of times we are, tend to be self-centered about the things that we want to accomplish. And the promise that people made when they stood up there was like, you know what? Your dreams are more important or at least as important as mine. And so I'm going to give up something. I'm going, to give, I'm going to courageously yield some of my preference so that some of your dreams can come true, not just mine. The promises that you made to each other when you stood before God and stood before the pastor and stood before your community, those promises are about the ways that you were submitting to one another. And so Paul begins this passage about marriage with those those, those are the umbrella words. Verse 21, submit to one another 
out of reverence for Christ. And now he's going to go and, and go layer after layer into marriage. Verse 22. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Now, this particular verse has been used, has not been, in my opinion, has not been handled well by some theologians and some pastors. And this verse, uh, if, if this verse causes harm to women, then it wasn't used properly, okay? <laughs> Put it that way. There's no scripture verses anywhere in the Bible where it should be causing harm to women. But this particular verse has been used by some people to create some harm to women. And this was the exact opposite intent of Paul. Paul actually wanted to give this verse, these verses on marriage, in order to actually elevate both men and women. But let me just tell you the way that this verse has been abused just historically, right? It, it works like this. In verse 22, Paul is addressing wives. And Paul says, wives, submit to your own husbands. So you have husband and you have wife. Then look at verse 25. In verse 25, it says, husbands, Paul writes, husbands, just love your wives, all right? So a religious leader could, a pastor or someone could stand up here in front of you all and it's say this and say, look, see, Paul tells wives that you must submit to your husband. So you're down here. And Paul tells, never tells husbands to submit to their wives. Does that make sense? Right? He never says that because if you just look at the text, it says, wives, submit to your husbands. Verse 25, husbands, just love your wives, right? So it sounds logical, but wait. So if you look at the original language, what I want you to know is that Paul never uses the word submit, hupotasso, in verse 22, where it actually says in your NIV, it says wives, like there it goes, wives, submit to your husbands. That word submit is actually not in the Greek. It actually doesn't appear. If some of you have the NASB, who has the NASB in here? Anyone have the NASB? Okay, one of you. Awesome. Right. So if you look at the NASB, uh, one of the most literal translations, it reads this. Next slide. Wives, be subject. Be subject, which is the word for submit. Be subject, that idea, yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And so how you notice how it's italicized there? That's actually how it looks physically also in the NASB. Whenever you see italicized words in the NASB, it's code. And what the code means is that it doesn't appear in the original text. That word is actually not there. The reason, so the reason they put the word submit there, the reason the NASB puts to be subject in there is because of the way that the Greek translates into English. It doesn't translate exactly too well. It's kind of a bridge, they're, they're bridge ver words in order to make it gr more, to read it grammatically well, all right? So literally, it reads like this. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence of Christ, for Christ. Verse 22, wives to your own husbands. The word submit is not in there, but the implication is there. So what? Who cares? The implication is there. What's the point? Well, the point is this. Paul is doing a very clever and subversive thing here. In verse 22, Paul tells wives to submit to their own husbands. The implication is there. The word is not there, but he never uses the word, right? But he implies it 
from the sentence that was just before, verse 21, which says, in general, that we ought to be submitting to one another. So, if wives submit to husbands, then husbands are actually supposed to then submit to wives as well, because that's what it said in verse 21, we submit to one another. So, if Paul, in verse 22, gives an example of a wife's submission, courageously yielding her preference in order to give preference to another, then he's also going to address a husband's submission. It only makes sense, right? He's going to talk about mutual submission. He's going to talk about a wife, and then what she does in verse 21, and then he's going to talk about husbands, which he does in verse 25, which says this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So instead of seeing love as you know, all a husband's got to do is love his wife, that's easy. What you have to understand is that when Paul says this word, husbands, love your wives, that that was radical back in the 21st century, that that was something incredibly challenging. I'm sorry, back in the first, in the first century. Maybe it is in the first 21st century as well, right? Yeah, it's still hard, right? It's still hard today as it was back then. But it was incredibly, incredibly countercultural to talk about it like this. Now, this is one of those things where, and we've talked about this before, that unless you do a good exegetical hermeneutical work, you will come to the wrong conclusion. Because if you read this verse through our 21st century lens, you will get the exact opposite interpretation of what Paul was actually saying to the first century readers. And I've said this before, that good Bible study, and if we would just, if people would just take the time just to do, go a little bit deeper. If you go back and understand um, that when Paul wrote this letter, he wrote it to specific people at a specific time in a specific culture, so that when these words were read and they were given, people heard a message. They heard truth. And what the job is of pastors and for us as believers is that we actually have to go back to the first century to hear that truth and then apply that truth to our day today. Does that make sense? You have to go back here to get the message here. Because if you just bypass all of that, you're going to get this message, but that message was not given to 21st century hearers and readers. It was given to first century. And so we have to do the Bible study and then we can get the biblical truth and knowledge. So if you read this through 21st century eyes, ears, Paul tells wives to submit to husbands, which in our time, for some of you, automatically, you, it comes across as chauvinistic, misogynistic, right? And then telling husbands, all you have to do is just love your wife, right? It sounds like they're getting off scot-free. Wives, husbands, love your wife, provide for her needs. That means like what? You know, wives... Uh, 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 you know, and then the wives, you just submit to your husband's needs and wants. So that means, like, wives, all you're supposed to do is, like, cook what your husband wants to eat, always wear what your husband wants you to wear, uh, always satisfy his sexual desires, uh, only spend money that he gives you, uh, get permission for everything, right? Now, that sounds like a pretty good marriage. Actually, from my point of view, it sounds like a pretty good marriage. Uh, but I'm a fallen person too, right? So that's 21st century eyes. Man gets everything, right? But what did the first century Greco-Romans hear? What did first century Jews hear? 
And so this is where it's a little bit difficult because we have to bridge these cultural things. But you need to know that in first century, Palestine and even before that, just in the Mediterranean in general, that misogyny, misogyny is a, disres- a general disrespect, even a general hatred for women. Misogyny was open in these times. Misogyny was kind of accepted in these times. Women were not regarded as whole persons. Women were regarded as property, property of men. A woman's character was deemed so lacking and so pitiful that a woman's testimony was not admissible in a court of law. That goes for Greco-Roman societies and also Jewish societies as well. Men could divorce women for the simplest offenses. You burned my meal. There's been examples of that, and a man would divorce a woman. So, in a first-century world where women were regarded as property and their greatest value was in producing a male heir, Paul injects the gospel perspective. Husbands, love your wives. And when he says that word love, Greeks had a very detailed understanding of love, that there are many types of love. There's at least six types of love. There's phileo love, which is brotherly love, Philadelphia. There's eros love, erotic, sexual, passionate love. There's ludus, which is playful, flirtatious love. There's philatia, which is the love of self. There's pragma, these are all Greek words, which is long-standing love, love between a couple that's been married 20, 30 years. They, had even, they even had a word for that, for that kind of love. But none of these are the words that Paul used to describe the love between a man and a woman. Paul used another Greek term that is described as the highest form of love. This love was self-sacrificing love. It's agape or agapeo. It is selfless, giving, sacrificial, submissive love. This was considered the highest form of love. So husbands, love your wife with the highest form of love. Do what is best for your wife, even at great personal cost to you, even when you don't feel like it, even when you don't want to do it. And of course, in Paul's mind, of course, Jesus is the example of this kind of love. So Paul reinforces this idea of agape love by using gospel, Christocentric, on the cross imagery to intensify this radical counter first cultural first century culture on how wives are treated. And so he says, verse 25, husbands, love your wives. And again, in our 21st culture, it's like, yeah, love, love, love everyone, love. It's not, it's, it seems very superficial. So Paul's going to go deep. Yeah, no, let me tell you what love looks like. Just as, in the same way, yeah, similarly to, just as Christ loved the church. So you're supposed to... He, Love your wife in a way you're supposed to think theologically when you think about your wife. Isn't that interesting? You're supposed to think theologically when you think about your husband. That the way I'm supposed to love my spouse has to do with the way that Christ gave himself and loved the church. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, 
and to present her to himself as a radiant church. Your spouse is supposed to become more handsome and more beautiful as your marriage goes on, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And then he goes on a a level deeper. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are all members of one body. So he goes from Christ and talking about how Christ loved the church and gave himself up sacrificially, submitting himself to the cross for the church. And then he goes on, in another level, and he says, you know how you love yourself? You know how you think about yourself and take care of yourself all the time? And again, he, in that first century Greco-Roman world, and he's speaking specifically to men right here, but mutual submission goes both ways, okay? But specifically talking to men in a patriarchal culture who had all the power, who were just thinking about how I can launch myself out, what I can do for myself. He says, in all the ways that men, you take care of yourself, and the way that you are kind of centered and centric around your own desires and what you're trying to do and accomplish, I want you to love your wife like that. It's this take that self-centered and make it other-centric and bring your wife into that orbit and love her the same way. So with first-century eyes and first-century ears, you can tell then that this was completely radical Completely countercultural, because nobody talked about their wife like that. Marriages and relationships are very, very different from our romantic, romanticized culture. But no one talked about sacrificing, agapeoing their wife like that in first century, and nobody connected the love of marriage between a man and woman to the level of Christ and his church. Wow. No one connected the highest self-sacrificial love of God to how husbands are supposed to love their wives and how wives are supposed to love their husbands. No one made that connection. So this did two things. This radically elevated the value and the role of women. And this radically elevated a man's value and a man's ability to love his wife and to love his family. It radically began to transform the relational dynamics of the entire family. That people aren't just property. That people aren't just less than. But people in our family are worthy of the greatest love, the most sacrificial love, the kind of love like we talked about last week, the kind of love that does, the kind of love that initiates, the kind of love where a man or woman is pursuing his wife in action. I I know that for myself too, sometimes we want to think, "I I don't need to do much more than I already do for my spouse, right? I mean, he, you know, she, she or angel knows that I love her. So just the fact that she knows that I love her doesn't mean I don't need to do anything else, right? It's pretty bad, right? I mean, if you just say, you know, that's more like, that's not love, that's indifference. That's indifference. Love 
always results itself in action, in pursuit, in energy, in connection. That's, that's real love. And so this verse was so radical in the first century, and I think it's still radical today. So radical today. So let me just uh, do this. I'm going to give you one, two, three, four. Four points of application for your marriage. And I gave you some application homework last week as well. And I hope you guys were having some good conversations around that. I hope you really did that, talking about what, what it was in a relationship that, is, is, you know, that you appreciate about the other person. But then what about the relationship that you're pursuing, that you're doing, that's really hurting the relationship? But let me give you four points of application from the verse that we've read. Number one is to seek God first. Seek God first. And I know that's such a simple one, but I, I want you to think about what Paul is talking about in marriage and why this particular point is number one and why this is so important. Paul says, like, if you want to have a good marriage, a healthy marriage, a marriage that's going to last a lifetime, and a marriage where both husband and wife not only get along, not just weather the storms in marriage, but where husband and wife are thriving in their relationship. He says in order for that to happen, there needs to be this idea of mutual submission that you need to, in other words, keep your promises and keep your wedding vows. That you're going to be able to courageously give, your, give up your preference for the preference of another. And to love your spouse like Christ loved the church. Look, if you don't know how Christ loved the church then how are you going to know how to love your spouse? In other words, if you don't have a deep and growing relationship with Jesus to know how deep and wide and, and the breadth of, of how wonderful and, and, and amazing is the love of God, if you don't understand that, if you're not growing in your relationship with God and in your intimacy and your depth with God, then how are you going to bring that to your marriage relationship? That's why it's so important to seek God first. When Paul talks about mutual submission, <laughs> this is hard stuff. That's why no one memorizes this verse. That's not, no one wants to do it because it's difficult because that's what love does. But that's what love does. But if we're not growing in our relational intimacy and depth with God where you are being transformed by gratitude, you're being transformed by God's humility, you're being transformed by God's energy for you to save you, if you're not being fed by that, how can you bring that type of understanding and comparison to your relationship to your spouse? Husbands, the most loving thing that you can do for yourself and for your wife is to seek God first. Wives, the most loving thing you can do for yourself and for God is to seek him first. Singles, the most loving thing that you can do right now and for your future spouse is to seek God first. And even if you never get married, nothing wrong with that. Paul says you have an advantage over married couples. You could do more, much more to bless the world. Singles, even if you never get married, the most important thing, best thing you can do, most loving thing you can do for yourself and for your future spouse, for the world, is to seek 
God first. Because mutual submission requires, requires a growing intimacy with God on a daily, daily basis. All right, so that's number one. Number two is to stand in love. Stand in love, firmly rooted in love. And I'm using this idea of standing in love in contrast to falling in love. All right? There's falling in love, and then there's standing in love. Falling in love is like really easy, right? Standing in love is a little bit harder. Now, one of the things I know, because uh, Angel and I have the privilege of, of doing a lot of premarital counseling, and then we also do um, just a little bit of assessments for couples that have been married, you, you know, longer. Uh, one's typically more fun than the other. I won't tell you which one. But uh, anyway, so one of the things that we know, and what's really important, because marriages are super, super important to us. There, there's a reason why for Angel and I, if you go to other churches, they'll do maybe two to three weeks of uh, premarital counseling with you. Angel and I are very intentional because we, we, we want to see all marriages thrive. We, we do six to eight sessions. That's three to four months. And, and you guys know, as you spent time with us, you know, it's not like an hour session and we're done. You know, we started seven. We ended 11, 1130. And it might sound like torture. I don't know. But I mean, we, Angel, at least we're having fun. You know, but it's just really super important for us that your marriages are healthy and that they're centered and rooted in the cross. And so we take, the psychologists know this, the six to eight months before you get married and the six to eight months after you get married, that is prime time where couples are the most open to learning about marriage and to make changes. And so during this time, in the six months, eight months before marriage, and six to eight months after marriage, psychologists, they call this time, this particular time of couples, uh, it's, it's labeled positive sentiment override. I know, really romantic, right? It's called positive sentiment override. What that means is that in this quote-unquote honeymoon period, everything that you learn about your spouse or your future spouse is good. Like there's nothing bad. All the weird things, all the idiosyncrasies, you know, he burps, he farts all the time, whatever. Like, all those things are, like, really cute. Because everything that you see is seen in the light of, like, I just love it. I'm falling in love. Positive sentiment override. Everything that you think is kind of weird or, like, a weird habit or idiosyncrasy or, you know, it really annoys your other friends or it really annoys his family. When you see those, your wife or your future wife or spouse do those things, those things that come across as, like, cute beautiful, distinctive. My wife, so different, so cool. No one else is like that. That's the six to eight months, positive sentiment override. And they say there's a stage that comes after that. And that stage, psychologists label the great reversal. (laughs) All right, you get it. That's what happens. Because when you start now having time all those things that you were different and that were cute and that were idiosyncratic, in the great reversal, those are the things that make it hard to love your spouse. Why? Because you thought your spouse was so godly, 
You thought your spouse was the perfect match for you. Your spouse could, your future spouse could do no wrong. But when you get into marriage and get to really know people, you see what sinners they are. And you see how sinful you can be as well. And so falling in love is so easy. Everything, oh, it's so easy to love my per, you know, this person and everything they do. Over here, it's hard. Falling in love is easy. Standing in love is the kind of love where you understand how Christ sacrificed for the church. So standing in love means this. You're fallen. Your spouse has fallen. <clears throat> standing in love is this, is what um, uh, 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 Paul says here. To make her holy or to make him holy, cleansing him or her by the washing with water through the word, to present him or her as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Standing in love means submitting to do what is spiritually beneficial for your spouse. That's what standing in love is. Standing in love is submitting to do what is spiritually beneficial for your spouse. If you see your spouse, like, just kind of suffering or they're just, you know, what, what are some things, difficult conversations that you need to have with them? Love does. Love is going to say, I want to do what I can do to spiritually benefit my wife. I want to do what love compels me, can compel me to do to spiritually elevate and benefit my husband. That's what it means to stand in love. You're supposed to be, why, it's kind of like this, this teaching environment, this educational environment, where we're helping each other transform more and more into the image of God. Is what you are doing, is your attitude or your actions toward your spouse, will those things help direct them towards Christ? That's what we do to mutually submit to one another. All right, number three, admitting selfishness and stubbornness. Admitting selfishness and stubbornness. And, and I, just, I, I just love this. This is important because, again, those first six to eight months before and six to eight months after, those are the times where we're less selfish, <laughs> tend to be less selfish and less stubborn. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, I was uh, with uh, Chris and, and Karen, and we were having, um, we were having lunch together. And uh, they've only been, uh, they haven't been married that long. And um, Chris, I used to be his mentor when he was in, in seminary. And so we would always meet at Geraldine's counter. Every time he came down here, that would just be our place to go. And so this time was our first meeting with Chris plus, and his plus one, you know? So she was kind of invading our space a little bit, you know, because he used to be my, my guy, you know? Um, but we were having such a great time and just kind of catching up. And at the very end of our time, I said, okay, look, Chris, you know, I, I kind of went into my mentor mode. I was like, okay, Chris, and I just need the guys to tell you just one thing. I just need to tell you one thing about your first year of marriage. That's it. And right when I said that, they were sitting together, but then they both scooted in like even more towards each other, and I could tell she also then grabbed his hand. And they were just looking intently at me, just waiting for the words to prophetically come from my mouth. I'm not going to tell you what I said. Anyway, <laughs> when you get married, I will tell you. I will tell you. But what I, what I loved was that there was just that openness 
this, this vulnerability, this excitement to know what I can do to benefit my husband. And that seems to sometimes disappear, doesn't it? The great reversal. It seems to disappear. And so that's why when it comes to admitting selfishness and stubbornness, this is the particular door for a lot of couples who feel stuck. Because what happens, instead of having this openness and like we're together and we're learning and we're trying to figure out our relationship well, what happens to some couples is that because there's some, um, there's some static between both of them, because maybe there have been some uh, relational walls that were built up because of arguments that um, uh, have not been resolved, or maybe your husband or, or, or wife is pursuing something that's really hurting you, and we don't talk about them because we don't know how to talk about them. And we want to kind of stay set in our stubborn ways and pursuing what we want to pursue. And when we stop admitting our own faults and the ways we've been selfish, that's when your marriage begins to die. And so if you want to create movement, because this is all about movement, is that there needs to be times in your marriages where there is confession, repentance, and acceptance. And I know those things can be come across as, as really difficult. But I just want you to know this, husbands and wives, when you know, like when you feel you're pursuing something that's really selfish, when you know in your own mind, in that moment of self-awareness, that you're stuck in something that's really stubborn, that's when you should know, I need to get out. That's when you know it's like, I need to reverse it. I need to do something different. That, that's your cue. That's the Holy Spirit telling you. You need to pursue something different. When your ego is rising up, that's when the Spirit is telling you to stand down. Because Paul says, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. See, in that moment, you're just trying to do, amen. In that moment, you're just trying to do what's good for you. That's what's going on in that moment. You're just trying to do what's good for you, and you're pursuing that. And that's what the Holy Spirit is saying. You're supposed to love your spouse and pursue what's best for them as that moment that you're trying to pursue for yourself. <clears throat> and then um, when couples are kind of stuck in this area where we're not talking about those difficult things anymore, there's going to be a level of suffering, emotional suffering. Let me just tell, tell you this, okay? Husbands, if you know that whatever is you're pursuing causes, is causing your wife to suffer for like a long time, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, because God loves you and I love you too, you need to change that immediately. You need to figure out what that is because your wife should not be suffering in your marriage relationship for whatever reasons. It shouldn't be this like attitude, like this, oh, I'm just suffering. Wives, if you look at your husband and there's just long-term, there's something going on, there's long-term, and you just see he's just suffering in the relationship. He's more and more detached, depressed, or whatever it is. You need to figure that out and figure out what needs to change there. What do you need to submit to? It goes both ways. Point is, is in marriage, if there's like this constant suffering going on because of 
unrepentance because of selfishness and stubbornness, it is going to destroy your marriage. So someone needs to speak up. Someone needs to say it. All right, number four, the sacrifice list. All right, so love yourself, uh, you know, your wife, your spouse, your husband as your own body. Everyone has a to-do list, right? Everyone's got a to-do list. And your to-do list, if you look at it, it's about what you need to do right, for yourself, okay? Now, the point is, is that I think every husband and every wife should have a to-do list. And part of your to-do list is actually you should have your spouse's name under there. And the to-do list is the things that I need to do for my spouse, the things that I know are going to awaken her, aliven her, give consolation to her, him or her, okay? You should have a to-do list for your spouse. I think every couple needs to have that. So you can regularly think about not only things that you need to do for yourself. I know, we all know we're going to do that. But what are the ways that I'm going to bring life and vitality? What are the ways that I'm going to submit my preference in order to give preference for my wife or for my husband? We could do that, amen? And sometimes these are just really small things, small things. Um, one of the things that I, I, I've done recently is uh, in the last two weddings, um, I, I've just shared about what, what, what God has done for me and what I think about whenever I have a hard time, when, difficulty when in my marriage with Angel. And just true confession, like I'm 90% of the cause, okay? Just letting you know, seriously. I, I'm 90% of the cause of like everything that goes wrong in our relationship. I'm, I'm not lying. I'm not lying. Um, but whenever it gets difficult, um, I always go back to my marriage, my wedding day, when, it, when she put this ring on my finger. Whenever it gets difficult, I go back to this day. You know why? Because what, what I share is that on this day, when I put that r- ring on her finger and she put this ring on mine, life can be crazy, but life was really clear that day. Life made sense that day, and God was so real that day. One of the reasons I just, I'm a believer today, that I continue to worship Christ, thankful Christ, is because God gave me angel. When I see angel, and when I see my two kids, I can only say there is a God, and I praise him, and I praise him. Life was so clear. And so whenever we have times in a marriage where we feel stuck, times in a marriage where you feel like you can't forgive the other person, times in a marriage where you don't want to give preference, you don't want to submit to the other person, you just need to look at this. Just look at this. And remember, it was so clear on that day that there is a God and that God provided me with his perfect, perfect person to be received into my life and I be received into their life. There's a good God who gave all of that and all those blessings and kids and and so forth and the life of covenant marriage. And that love is rooted not just in me because I don't have enough love for it, But Scripture says that that love between my wife and I is rooted 
in how Christ sacrificed himself for us and for the church. That's the kind of love that is available for us to submit and sacrifice for one another. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for this time together. We praise you. We lift your name on high. And we say thank you, Lord. Thank you for uh, your word that is so countercultural first century and still is today. And so, God, I pray that you would give great conviction, however you want, Father, to every couple here, to put God first, to put you first, to stand in your love, to admit our selfishness, our stubbornness, and to begin creating that sacrifice list of what we need to do daily, not just for you, but for that one relationship that's most important that we want to continue to propel in life. And that our spouse, our husband, our wife, is the sign of God. Is God's practical way that love does. That he gave us. You gave us our spouse. You gave us our kids. You gave us our blessings. And this ring is symbolic of your promise to us. And this ring is symbolic of the promise that we made to our spouse, future spouse, and to our kids and to our community. So we bless your name, God. Thank you for always being so faithful to us that we might be faithful to those we love most. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen, church. Let's all, let's sing together.